Welcome to Name Drop San Diego, a podcast about the fascinating people in, around, and from San Diego. I'm your host, Christy Totten, and my guest today is Ari Novi. Ari is the president and CEO of the San Diego Botanic Garden in Encinitas, which you've probably heard of recently because they just had a very rare and very smelly corpse flower bloom there. Ari is an expert horticulturist and a fourth generation florist. He studied on the East Coast and has worked in Italy, the Philippines, and Washington, D.C., among other places, before coming to San Diego. In this conversation, Ari talks about the Botanic Garden, the Holy Grail of flowers, and why your green thumb isn't totally doomed if you've killed a couple of plants. Here's our conversation. Uh, Well, Ari, thanks so much for being here with me. Uh, You are the president and CEO of the San Diego Botanic Garden. Uh, Welcome. Thanks so much, Christy. It's really a pleasure to be here. So I read your bio online. Uh, You're really accomplished and really involved in a lot of things, but could we begin by you giving me just sort of your your life story in a nutshell? Sure. Um, I think the short version is um, I was raised in in New Jersey um, by a a floral family. I'm a fourth generation florist. Uh, My great grandfather started a a flower shop in Newark, New Jersey um, before World War II. And so I, I was sort of raised with flowers and plants around me and part of kind of what my family did. And, uh, you know, I guess I just kind of got that in my heart and, um, you know, just sort of worked through my life in, in a way that I realized I could make at least part of my living with plants. And I just kept following it and it led me to grad school and eventually into the botanic garden world and kind of here where I am today. That is so amazing. Fourth generation. Uh, so what were some of your first experiences with uh, flowers or, or plants? Uh, you know, what I remember is, is, you know, being in the back of my grandfather's flower shop, you know, as a pretty young boy, you know, five, six years old, and, and he would, you know, give me jobs, you know, um, you know, move these, these flowers from here to there, show me how to properly, you know, cut them and put them in water so that they would last, um, and, uh, and just kind of tell me what to do and how to handle those materials. Um, you know, of course, as a family, or not of course, but our family, we, we were into vegetable gardening, so we, we did a lot of that, and, um, you know, it, it was fun to learn the, the trials and tribulations of vegetable gardening. If you vegetable garden, you know, sometimes you get a great year for this or that, and the next year it all gets eaten by bugs or, or, or rodents or something, and, and it's, you know, it's really an amazing window into how the natural world works just to try to grow vegetables for, for many, many years growing up. And so I, I got to have that. And that, that's, I think, really what, what helped me. Um, my, my parents eventually moved into a very rural uh, agricultural part of New Jersey. And so I went to high school in a, in a regional high school you know, that was a lot of farms. And a lot of my classmates and friends were farmers. And so I kind of learned a little bit about you know, how that works you know, by osmosis. But I never really thought I'd go into plants as a living, honestly. And it wasn't until I was an adult and um, you know, sort of rediscovered a love of horticulture and, and, and had some mentors that helped me understand that there's livings to be made out there in, in that world that I, I started to look at it as a career option. Yeah, that's so, uh, that's so fascinating. Well, how did, how did you choose San Diego? Is it because of the plant life at all? No, I, I wish it was. I, I was, I was, um, I was running our national botanic garden, the U.S. Botanic Garden in Washington D.C. And um, at one point, I wasn't looking for a job. I, I, I got reached out to by a San Diego-based organization, sort of asking if I would be interested in working here. And the job that they had was, you know, kind of a, a, kind of a half business development and you know half um, land development for an agricultural 
kind of a setting. And uh, at the time I wasn't interested, but a few years went by and they, 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 they hadn't found the person that they wanted to do that job. And so they asked again and I, I said, yes. So um, I moved out to, to, to San Diego to do that job. And, um, and I knew it was a temporary position. I just thought it would be interesting to try this part of the country and sort of learn about it. Um, and then, and it was, it was a great job and I enjoyed it. And while I was in it, the, the Panic Garden job here opened up. And so I applied for that. And, and that's how I ended up at San Diego Botanic Garden. Very cool. Uh, I've been to the Botanic Garden just once. I'm still fairly new here, but uh, it's such an incredible place. Uh, what are you proud of when you, when you think of it? You know, what do you think the garden uh, does really well? I, I love that our garden has such an organic history. You know, the, it, you know, a lot of gardens around the world and in the U.S., pu public gardens and botanic gardens were the very palatial estates of, you know, you know somebody. Um, and, and sometimes, I mean, that's great. There's a cool history in that, but oftentimes it makes it a little hard to feel accessible in, in the modern day. But the, st the story and history of our local botanic garden in San Diego is really different. You know, there, there was a, 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 a woman named Ruth Larrabee who um, owned a, a small house and a, a bit of land, you know, back in the, in the 50s um, when there was not that much in Encinitas, you know, it was a tiny <laughs> surfing village. And, um, and, and she was leaving the area. Um, she went to Texas and actually be became a nurse there. And um, she decided, you know, before she died, you know, just as she was leaving, she, she said, I want to leave the land to the county of San Diego. At that time, there was no city of Encinitas. This was all unincorporated. Um, and she, she, she left it without a lot of instructions. She kind of said, I want it to be left and I want it to become a, a park and, and I want it to be, you know, uh, to preserve the, the plant and animal life and especially the, the quail. She loved the California quail. And that was kind of it. And the county accepted it. And it took them about 10 years to open the doors. And in 1970, um, they opened the doors to the public really as a basic public park. And then in the, the next you know, several decades, there was a relationship between the county and the county staff that was managing that park and the great work that they were doing to improve it and add you know, more and more interesting plants into the collection on the land, also acquiring a little bit more of the adjacent land, and also the nonprofit, uh, what's called the Quail Botanic Gardens Foundation, that sort of sprung up as a friends organization to help. And over time, you know, all this organic change happened, and it was very, you know, sort of um, just slow and 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 natural. Um, and then the county said, hey, you know, maybe the the nonprofit should manage the land, and the county should retain ownership. And that transition sort of happened from the late '80s to the early '90s. And then I would say by the mid '90s, the, the garden really was what we think of as a modern botanic garden, you know, that's got a board and, and, a, and a, you know, employees that are experts in botanic garden management. And, and that's where the growth of the sort of modern botanic garden came from that time period. So it's really fascinating because it's not like this masterminded thing going back, you know, 50 years. And this is the vision we had. It really grew just gradually and organically. And so it, it uniquely has a, a feel of this place. You know, it, it, like it could, this garden couldn't be anywhere other than San Diego County. And, and, and that's, there, that's something just so wonderful about it. It's so of our place and it so represents the, the values and style and feel of, of our community. Definitely. Will you sort of walk me through it? So, you know, just sort of visually, what are the things in the garden that um, stand out? So our, our garden is, you know, 37 acres large, which is not huge for a botanic garden, but it's certainly a lot of land, especially in, in coastal Southern California. And um, the first thing when you arrive at the botanic garden that you experience is you come in and you check in and you buy your ticket or you, if you bought online, you 
you know, you show your ticket at our Dickinson Family Education, Education Conservatory. And this is a big glass house that we just finished building a couple of years ago. And it's, it showcases amazing tropical plants. And you can see tropical pitcher plants and you can see amazing foods that grow in the tropics like chocolate and vanilla and coffee. Um, you know, things that are so important to our lives here, but, you know, don't grow here. Although now we do grow coffee in Southern California, <laughs> but not yet chocolate and um, vanilla. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's really a lot of fun and it's a beautiful space. And that's where we showcase our orchid collection sometimes of the year. And we just had the amazing corpse flower bloom. And that's where we had that. So that's sort of the first thing you see. And that's just spectacular. Um, a lot of weekends and festivals will have music in the amphitheater just out, outside that space, which is really wonderful. If you keep going up the garden, you can walk through um, our, our Hamilton Children's Garden, which is the largest children's garden on the West Coast. And that's just an amazing play structure and exploration space where kids can really start to get their hands in nature and start to understand, you know, what is the, the diversity of plant life and, you know, what is all this green stuff and woody stuff and uh, you know, all around me. And it's just a wonderful space to watch kids explore, you know, nature. Um, from there, you, you move through our California Gardenscapes Garden, as well as um, adjacent to some of our natural areas, which for us is the, the famous maritime chaparral of our region. And there you get to see the, the native plants, you know, what, what our land looks like, you know, in this part of California before anybody did anything to it, what it's sort of the natural state is. And in our California Gardenscapes Garden, we take those same plants, the native Southern California plants, and we show the ones that are that are available in the landscape trade that you can buy as native plants and use to adorn your home. And we love these native plants and these native adapted plants because they have the lowest water requirements and they have a lot of value for, for wildlife and for building the soil. And so they're in some ways um, some of the most um, sustainable plants you can choose um, and, and least labor and input intensive plants. Um, there's 24 themed gardens at San Diego Botanic Garden, so I won't go through all of them. But from there, you can you start heading up our hill, and when you crest the hill, you get the view of the Pacific, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from our Old World Desert Garden and our Mexican Garden and, and portions of our um, subtropical fruit garden, you can see the ocean. And when you're in the bamboo garden, and you know, we have the National Bamboo Collection, we have the largest bamboo collection in North America on our site you feel the ocean breeze. And so there's just, you know, there's nowhere else where you can go and be amongst 150 bamboo species and feel the Southern California <laughs> ocean breeze. And so that's, there's just so much unique and wonderful to see and experience here. For sure. Uh, coming from the desert, I, I moved here from Las Vegas a couple of years ago. I'm sort of amazed by the, the variety of plant life, but I mean, like is San Diego um, particularly fertile or diverse or just hospitable to plants? Yes, um, it is particularly diverse. That's the right word. So San Diego County has more species of native plant life than any other county in the United States. So we are we are really, you know, you hear about biodiversity hotspots. San Diego County for plants is the biodiversity hotspot of the United States. Um, and I believe that's true for bird species as well. I think you can see more bird species in San Diego mm. County than any other county in the United States. So we, we, you know, if you feel like, wow, there's a lot of birds and plants to learn in San Diego County, it's not just you. I mean, that's <laughs> really true. If we, if we lived in um, a county much further north or in the Midwest or Northeast, you'd have fewer plants to have to learn. And you think about it, you know, plants are adapting to unique climates, right? They're all trying to find and optimize their, um, their performance and success you know, to whatever climate they find themselves in. And, and San Diego is an amazing piece of land. It's got a lot of gradients. It's got a, a strong um, temperature gradient from the coast 
you know, out to the east. So it does become, you get you know, this mild coast climate all the way to the, you know, real deserts of, of, of Anza Borrega. Um, you have an amazing elevation gradient. So we have sea level, both inland and, and by the ocean. And then we have, you know, these you know, beautiful large mountains and the, the plant life changes, you know, as you go up and down those gradients, you have water gradients. We have a lot more water, you know, here near, near the ocean than, you know, towards, towards East County. Um, and we have other interesting gradients as well. And, and, you know, all of these gradients produce different conditions for plant life and each different condition for plant life favors more diversity of that plant life. So we're very fortunate in San Diego County to have the diversity that we do. Okay, well, I wanna, <clears throat> excuse me, ask more about you. And I have a question, I it might be ridiculous. I think it probably is, but is there like a plant, a flower, anything that you, you want to encounter that you haven't encountered yet? Something that you maybe want to grow or go and see in nature that you haven't seen yet? Oh yeah, there's many, <laughs> but I, I, I think I've, I've long said that, you know, for botanic gardens and for me personally, kind of the holy grail of, of horticultural plants would be this plant called Rafflesia. And Rafflesia is a genus of parasitic plants. They're the largest flowers in the world, um, the largest single flowers in the world. Um, and they grow in Southeast Asia. And the largest one grows in Indonesia and then many of the other species grow in the Philippines. And so far, we have been unable to grow these plants outside of their native range. And so I, I do a lot of work with a whole consortium that we put together several years ago to try to collect and responsibly you know, utilize these plants and learn how to grow them um, outside of their native range for, for, for conservation purposes. But also, it's such a strange looking flower. It's a red kind of like, it almost looks like a flower you would expect to see in the original Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> and um, and it, it, but it's a real life version of that, and they can be you know up to two three feet you know wide, a single flower, and um, that to me that's one of the holy grails. That sounds incredible. I'm very tempted to Google it right now. I'm going to wait until this interview's over. But yeah, what immediately came to mind is like the little shop of horrors flower. You know, like um, okay, well let's see. I have a lightning round for you. It's a few random questions, but the first one is, what is your favorite movie? Oh God, my favorite movie. Um, favorite few. I, I, I'll go with my with my plant theme. So my favorite plant-based movie is Wally. And I think if you think about it, you realize Wally is really a movie where the plant is the protagonist. Oh wow. Yeah, I guess you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way. Okay. Uh what are some hobbies not related to plants? I don't have any hobbies not related to plants. Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I'm a dad, and so I, I I love being with my kids, but my kids will say I talk about plants too much. And um, I, I'm a very poor musician. That's my my. Oh, name. what do you play? I play guitar and piano. Very cool. Um, I bet it's not that. <laughs> okay, what um, what's your perfect San Diego day? I I would say going to the beach with the kids um, and probably grabbing a, a a paddleboard out in the ocean while I'm out there, and then maybe. Um, some good street tacos and, you know, finish the day at the Botanic Garden, of course. Of course. Okay. Uh, where's your favorite taco shop? I know this gets controversial quickly in San Diego, but. I mean, I'm going to, I'm, I'm a newbie, right? I only came to San Diego like four years ago, but, but for me, I, I still think the best taco I've had is a taco El Gordo. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Super great. Um, I had on this list, uh, you may have already answered it, but plant, is there, you, do, do you have a favorite, uh, you know, plant that's not the Holy Grail? Sure. It's always hard for me to choose, right? Because I feel like plants are like my kids. I can't really like choose a favorite. But but I, I always answer the same way. And I, it's the chocolate tree. Um, Theobroma cacao is the, 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 it's an Amazonian tree from South America. 
um, that we derive chocolate from. And it's now grown all over the world in different regions that can support you know, growth of that tree because we love chocolate and chocolate is awesome. Um, but it's my favorite because that's the plant that when I talk to kids about it, if I say, you know, who likes chocolate? And I go, look, and we have this tree in our conservatory. And I say, look, here it is. Here's the chocolate tree. You just see kids, their eyes light up in this special way. And they go, oh my gosh, that is the plant where this thing that I love, chocolate, comes from. And in that moment, they're so open to talking about botany and ecology and you know, how, we, how we derive different things that we value from nature. It's, it's, you know, I, I love the chocolate tree, not only because it gives us chocolate, but because of the, the bridge it creates for us to talk about plants with kids. Mm, yeah, that's very poetic. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned with your favorite uh, plant or the Holy Grail plant, I've already forgotten the name. Would you remind me? Rafflesia. Rafflesia. How do you spell that? Uh, R-A-F-L-E-S-S-I think. I always forget it's two Fs and, and, and one S or two. Okay. Two S it, and one S, but more or less. Rafflesia. That'll set me in the right direction when I, when okay. I go and Google it later. But um, you mentioned not being able to grow it out of its native land. I mean, are there other big mysteries out there or questions waiting well, to be solved in your profession? Yeah, there are really tons. Um, you know, there, there was it, it, only about two years ago was there a, a comprehensive study produced that let us know how many plants um, out of all the plants in the world that were able to grow in botanic gardens and that we do grow worldwide in botanic gardens. And it's only about a third of all of the species of plants that we have that we have in botanic gardens. Now, that's a big number. We have about 400,000 species of plants in the world and we're still counting, so there may be more. Of course, we're losing them very rapidly, so it's, a, it's, it's important we get that we understand what's out there before we lose it and try to save it. Um, so we are growing well over 100,000 plants, over, you know, over 120,000 plants in gardens around the world, which is a huge number. I mean, it's, it's an almost unfathomable number, um, but it's not enough. Um, and a lot of it is because many of those plants are very difficult to grow in, in artificial environments. Uh, many of them have seeds where this, the seed viability is very low. Uh, you know, we call those recalcitrant seeds, where you know, unless if you don't plant the seed almost immediately after the plant produces it, it's it's not viable. It loses its ability. We, mm -hmm. we like to think that all seeds are like maples or you know corn or wheat, where we can save the seed for a while. But in fact, nature, you know, many of the seeds that nature gives us are not viable, and and so we we have a lot of work to do to learn, you know, horticulturally, you know, what requirements all of these different plants have to grow and learn how to grow them um, in botanic gardens and similar places so that we can understand them and preserve them in nature better. How do you get people excited about plants that maybe aren't already interested? I think that plants, and you know, in some way, plants relate to almost everybody. I mean, you know, last I checked, four out of four people eat. So that's kind of like one of the main <laughs> things. Um, and, you know, really everything we eat, except if it comes from the ocean, comes from plants. Even if you like meat, you know, what did, what did, what did that cow eat? That cow ate plants, you know? So, you know, plants are, you know, what, 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 what the earth, you know, der derives its energy from, right? They're our primary producers. Um, but also, you know, it's, it, even if you're like engineering minded, right, you know, like, you know, why do we call a factory where we build things a plant? Mm. Because they're plants, you know, people noticed early on in the industrial you know, period of our society that we were essentially mimicking plant life by taking in raw ingredients and producing something useful because that's plants were the things that did that for the vast you know, majority of human history. And we've only sort of you know, learned enough to do that in new ways now. So I, I always like to say there's three ways of getting stuff on the planet. You can mine it, 
You can pull it out of the ocean or you can grow it from plants. Everything comes in one way or another from those three basic processes on earth. And, and plants are by far the, the, the largest. Um, you know, 85% of all living matter on the earth right now is a plant. So you know, when you really start thinking about what you like, whether it's surfing, music, engineering, you know, there's plants involved in it. That's amazing. And that's an incredible tip about the industrial revolution. Um, have you heard of plant blindness? A friend of mine was telling me about this, who's like very into plants. And he's like, yeah, sometimes if people aren't into it, they just like, it just like doesn't even register. Whereas people that are into it are like, you know, walking around constantly searching. <laughs> is, that, yes. is that a thing? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's a term. There, there was a group of professors at Louisiana State University that developed that term. Um, and it's become an important term in the plant education universe. Um, and it really it refers to the fact that, yeah, people kind of plants are so non-threatening, you know, you know, that you just kind of see them as these green things hanging around and not everybody takes notice. And there's even some evolutionary you know, psychologists who have proposed that, you know, since plants never tried to run us down and eat us, you know, <laughs> nor, nor do they really vector human diseases, you know, like, so, you know, that we just we've, we've sort of evolution has, has, has not um, created any hardwire ability to sort of, you know, pay special close attention to plants. Um, and I don't know if I believe that or not, but it's certainly an interesting theory. But we definitely talk a lot about plant blindness in, the, in our education world that we want to help people cure plant blindness. But at the same time, I think it's kind of a negative kind of connotation. And, you know, it, I, I actually think that the reason why people don't see plants is more about just recent human history. I mean, if you go back 100 years, you know, 60 to 80 percent of people were farmers. You know, they and trust me, they didn't have plant blindness. They all could see the plants. <laughs> um, and so we're just in, in an interesting time in human society where in the United States, 80% of all Americans live in cities or urbanized and are surrounded by less plant life. And the plant life they see is, is different. Um, and they're not taught much about it and, it. and they're not operating with it, you know, very, very much. So I think what we just have is, you know, a period in time where, where we're not paying as much attention to plants. Um, but what, what I love about now as well, and you see this with the, with the houseplant craze that's happening now and you know, young people just love you know, plants. I, I noticed you have some beautiful plants behind you. Thank um, you. <laughs> and uh, we both, I think, have some pothos behind us. And uh, you know, um, people viscerally wanna feel connected to plants. And so you know, I think people like me and, and botanic gardens and other plant educators, we have this great opportunity now where we can help people you know, um, not have plant blindness and really see what plants are out there. Yeah, what did you see during the pandemic? Did that affect your industry at all? People getting more involved in, in plants or interested in plants? Absolutely. Um, you know, in terms of the whole industry, if you talk to, you know, especially houseplant growers, but really any kind of, you know, plant grower, I mean, they, seed growers, I mean, they just can't keep them, you know, on the shelves. I mean, they just can't produce them fast enough, you know, for what people want them. So people, every aspect of plants has sort of been exaggerated during the pandemic. People want more houseplants. They want different and cooler house plants they want to grow you know a, a more interesting kinds of plants in their yards outdoors as ornamentals they want to grow vegetables at home and herbs i mean it's just been this amazing you know reawakening of the ability and desire to grow plants you know where, where they are and we've seen that at the garden too so many people are coming and so many more young people are coming to the garden um, we love our retired visitors um, but it's wonderful to see a a, a much um, a wider range of people of all ages that are coming to the garden and especially young people having this fascination with plants. I have a selfish question to ask you now, which is I have two Hoya plants and they won't flower. How can I make them flower? So 
whenever something is not flowering, you, the secret is usually to try to forget that it's there. Um, mm. Plants often need a little bit of benign neglect and, and they <laughs> just sort of show. I know when I'm at home with my Hoyas or my orchids and you know, I, I'm asking the same question. I'm going, oh, should I put it in, in this window or further away? Or is it the right fertilizer? It's usually like the moment I forget that they're there and I skip a week of watering it and this and that, that's when they flower. You know, they, they, they want a enough stress that wakens, wakes them up, but not enough to, you know, really, really harm them. Okay. That's a good tip. I had an orchid uh, rebloom once and it was the most exciting thing ever. It's only, had, yeah, but probably accidentally because I, I probably did neglect it. They don't want, plants don't really want to be babied. You know, I mean, one, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got on house plants, which I practice now religiously, is that always better to underwater than overwater. Mm -hmm. Always. A, a plant will show you the signs that it needs to be watered well before it can't recover. But mm -hmm. if you overwater something, as soon as you get signs of overwatering, the plant is essentially dead. In many cases, it's already rotted on the inside. So, you know, definitely running your plants, you know, with less frequent watering or, or sparing water and stressing them a little bit in that way is usually much, much better for them than, than overabundance of water or nutrients. Does the Botanic Garden have educational programs? Absolutely, yeah. We, we have an education department here. We're, we're very, um, a big part of our educational programs, of course, are kids. Um, so we love having a lot of school groups here and we work with some wonderful um, partners in San Diego County, like SDG&E, um, to get funding to bring Title I school kids from all over the county to experience the garden. But we also have really robust adult education programs, um, everything from, you know, botanical drawing and, you know, the arts in the garden to home houseplant care, um, fruit fruit tree care, vegetable growing, you know, all, all of the above. We, we we love every aspect of plants and, and we, we tend to engage it. You can also have, we also have wonderful yoga classes in the garden. Oh, wow. That sounds incredible. Um, what is your vision for the garden? You said, you know, you've been there a little while now. How would you like to see it grow? Uh, we're in a great growth phase at the garden. We're doing more and more work all the time. Um, in the last year, we've created a new science and, and conservation department. And so we are you know, doing a lot more forward science uh, research and conservation work. So you know, we're a partner with many land management organizations throughout the county, including various levels of government, the county, the state, various municipalities, um, nonprofit um, uh, and conservation organizations. And we do a lot of, um, we use our botanical skills to monitor plant populations, to collect from them. And uh, we grow some of the most rare and difficult to grow plants in San Diego County so that they can, get, you know, and we keep track of where they came from and you know, what, what their home populations are so that they can be used in restoration projects and, and to you know, really improve the environment. So that's a really big part of what we do. And we're always trying to expand that work. Um, we're also expanding a lot of our research into, into sort of you know, basic you know, bi biology. We're, we're doing wonderful partnerships with, with the Salk Institute and UCSD, you know, probing the genetic basis of plant life. You know, why, does, why do cork trees produce cork? How do they do that? We're, we're actually sequencing the cork oak genome right now at, at, at the Botanic Garden. So that's really exciting to you know, plumb the fundamental um, you know, biological reasons for why plants do what they do. Um, and then in the future, what we're really excited about is continuing to improve the garden, you know, make it, a, you know, continue to make it even more and more beautiful and more reflective of, of the, the place of San Diego and our, and our community, um, you know, really show more and more diverse parts of the community and how, you know, each part of our community interacts with plants. We just did an awesome, you know, Day of the Dead exhibit, you know, using a lot of plant components, um, you know, orange marigolds and things, and, and we had a wonderful um, artist come in. 
um, you know, who, who helped us, you know, do that in a very authentic manner. Um, so, so that was really exciting. And, and then I would just say the last thing that I'm really excited about is, you know, I, I as an educator, I love it when people engage in, and participate. You know, I sort of believe in the, you know, um, you know, if you teach someone to fish, you're really doing something for them, you know, as opposed to just giving them food. And, um, you know, I, I want people to learn how to do everything with plants, grow your own, um, improve them with breeding, uh, do tissue culture. And so we're excited about kind of a next generation at the garden where we have tissue, you know, public tissue culture facilities and public plant breeding facilities. And people can come in and say, I, I really want to make unique plants, you know, that as I see that we need them. And to, to me, that would be very empowering and exciting to do. Wow, that's incredible. Um, okay, and, and final question. I mean, what is you know your goal for yourself? Maybe a bucket list item or just something you still hope to do in your career? Wow, I'm always trying to be better at growing plants. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it's it's it's. I have to say, it was really intimidating moving to San Diego. Um, I I never lived on the West Coast. I grew up on in the Northeast, and um, you know, I really know the plants very very well and much of the East Coast, but. It's such a different plant palette here. And the, the challenge of understanding, you know, moving from a temperate climate where it's cold in the winter and you know, warm in the summer, and there's a very clear you know, growing season from the spring to the fall to here where we have a 365 day growing season. And for the native plants, the real growing season is the winter. The plants come alive with the rains in the winter. Um, it's such a different way of thinking ecologically uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still adjusting to it. And so it's one of my big challenges to really feel like I understand the ecosystem and the plant life in this place in, in, in the most intimate way. Um, because I think you, you have to develop that understanding of it to, to be able to do plant conservation and restoration work really well. Now, thank God I'm surrounded here by people who, who are from here, have been here a lot longer than I have and really know this stuff and they teach me every day. But it's definitely something I really want to continue to deepen my understanding of. Okay, one last question. Have you ever killed a plant or when's the last time you killed a plant or failed to grow a plant in the way that you had hoped? <laughs> so every, every green thumb is built with more plant deaths than you can possibly count. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not killing plants, then you're not taking enough risks in, in, in trying to grow plants. I have killed more plants than I, I care to, um, to, to count. Um, and, and it's, you know, plants are finicky in some cases. And mo mostly they're finicky because we don't get them, right? Plants exist on a completely different plane than we do. They express their needs. Um, the, they, they, they go through time. I, you know, I sort of think of this concept of plant time. Plants think, if you can call it thinking, on, a, on, a, on their own schedule. They don't care about us and our <laughs> desire to you know, get something done before 7 a.m. And you know, they're, they're, they're just really different than us. And so you, know, you will kill plants but hopefully you will kill plants on your way to that understanding of what plants need. And, um, but the more you challenge yourself, the more you're going to kill plants. And one of the things about plant people, I think, is we're always trying to do the really hard. Uh, my, 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 my example is I lived in Washington, D.C. for many years, and I lived in a, a condominium apartment, you know, and, and we had sort of an enclosed balcony. And I really wanted to have citrus trees there. And, you know, citrus trees are very hard indoors with a roof in a temperate climate. And so I, I got, I had about four you know, trees that I got to live and they even produced a couple of oranges for me every what? year. And my wife used to always say, those trees look terrible. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, you know, and I would say, I'm impressed that these are alive and producing fruit. <laughs> and that made me very, very happy. And so I think there's, 
a real desire for plant people to grow this stuff that's marginal and that's really difficult to grow in the climate that you're in. And that leads to a lot of plant death, frankly. <laughs> okay, well said. And I feel a lot better about all the plants that I've killed. Is there anything that you're trying to grow here in San Diego that doesn't want to be here at home personally? You know, I, I, I miss certain um, deciduous temperate woody species that that are that struggle you know in, in San Diego in many cases for for some of the the cold weather stuff you know we're we're very marginal and there, there's some microclimates you know within the county uh, obviously you can go up to Julian and, and grow all the stone fruits and do really cool things um, but like one of my favorite trees is the ginkgo tree and we have a ginkgo tree that's really special here at San Diego Botanic Garden because it's actually the seed, you know, it's the offspring of, of one of the ginkgo trees that survived the nuclear bombing in Hiroshima, Japan. Whoa. Um, and so it's, you know, we call these witness trees, these, you know, these trees that have, that have witnessed amazing, you know, parts of our history, good and bad. And so that's a really special tree for us. And ours is doing pretty good, but we're, we're on a very marginal edge of that. That tree wants a colder winter than we're able to give it. Um, and so I, I, I love our ginkgos here, but I, I kind of miss being a little further north, you know, with a little more cold, where they would just get a little more full and a little more vigorous. And, and so I think that, you know, those are the, those are the ones that I miss being able to grow a, a little bit differently than we are able to grow them here. Thank you again to Ari for joining me and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.